passage of Scripture about which I will be speaking in a few moments in the message of the morning, recorded in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. A familiar story, hear it again, and may God give us fresh insight into His Word and into our lives as we read and hear His Word. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For, and this is the key word and key verse, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. May we join hands and hearts together as we pray. Dear Lord, whatever it is in our hearts and lives that is lost, out of place, not being used, we pray that we will be saved today. Not only saved in the sense of our eternal life by faith in you, but saved from meaninglessness and loss of respect and purpose in life the loss of relationships, the loss of opportunities, the loss of meaning. And so, Father, come today to save everything about us, our minds, our hearts, our lives, our family life, our business life, our attitudes toward others. Save us from prejudices. Save us from piousness. Save us to be more like you in all that we are and all that we do to the end that the world might see in us a reflection of your incomparable love and grace, and that they too, even like Zacchaeus, will come to be found and saved and changed by your incomparable, magnificent love. But we do pray this in Jesus' loving name. And Lord, walk in here today, even as you did into Jericho, and call us by name. Amen. It's not the first time this morning I've heard that song. Uh, it was better now than it was at about 6 o'clock this morning. Um, I, I get up extra early on Sunday morning to go in there to try to get my heart started and the motor running and rework the sermon. And... and uh, think it through and pray it through. And, of course, when Martha's singing, she gets up early too and starts vocalizing. 
So I'm back in one room sermonizing, she's in another room vocalizing, and the neighbors are calling, <laughs> complaining, what are you all doing over there? Are you having family problems or something? Um, but speaking of getting up early and being surprised, a number of years ago, <laughs> I was to speak at a breakfast meeting in Uvalde, and I was invited to come down and spend the night. It was a citywide kind of affair of some sort, and, and uh, I was invited to come down and spend the night, and then get up the next morning and speak, and I thought, oh, I don't, I don't like to spend the night away from home unless I just have to. Uh, have to some, but I don't like it. And so I said, uh, I'll be there. I'll get up plenty early and I'll drive down to Uvalde. <laughs> well, uh, I got up at about four o'clock and I was trying to be, I was trying to be quiet and not wake up Martha. And I was, uh, I was going to go into the kitchen and start the coffee and get me a cup of coffee and you know, get quietly dressed and, and uh, start on my way to Uvalde. Well, the lights were all out. And when I walked into the into the kitchen, there's always you know sort of we have a little night light in there and all. I walked into the kitchen. I was coming in this door, and the refrigerator's right here, and the kitchen over there, and the dining room over here. And as I walked in, suddenly this person was in front of me. And and I went in, I went into my my combination boxing and uh, karate. Uh, mode of action, I started going, ah, mm, and it, the, all the time I was doing it, I knew it was Martha standing there, <laughs> and I thought, it's just instinct, and here I am doing this, and she is just dying laughing, standing there, standing there looking at me. Fortunately, I didn't hit her, did I? There's no, no uh, wife abuse involved in it at all. <laughs> You feel like a fool, like a fool going, ah, hmm, ah. <laughs> and, and they laugh at you. You're supposed to be afraid. You're supposed to run away. <laughs> Terrible. Well, going to church one morning years ago, uh, back when we had an 8 o'clock service, so it was earlier even than this service, uh, I got in my car and I backed out and I was coming on down here about 7.15 or 7.30, and um, my neighbor, and this is a number of years ago now, and that he's moved away many years ago, so you would have no way of knowing who he was, but he was out, he'd come out front to get the morning paper, and he was out there by, on the sidewalk opening up the paper, and I pulled up there, and I lowered the window on that side and spoke to him, and I said, how are you doing? He said, where are you going so early? I said, well, I'm going to church. I said, we have you know, service, two services every Sunday morning, 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And he said, oh, I knew you had the 11 o'clock service. I said, I didn't know you had that uh, early service. And I said, well, I'd like to invite you sometime. He said, fine, thanks. And I'd invited him before. I said, I'll see you later. He said, give him hell, Bugner. <laughs> and uh, give him hell. And I drove on down here thinking, you know, I don't think that's what most people need. I think we got enough of hell, enough of hell created by our own actions. Enough of hell that falls in upon us circumstantially. Maybe not directly related to anything that we have done <clears throat> individually. The more I got thinking about it, you know, Jesus didn't come to give anybody hell. 
In fact, he came to save everybody from it. <clears throat> Both now and forever. That's not the right four-letter word to describe what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to give us hell. He came to give us hell. He came to give us hope. He came to give us health. He came to give us happiness. And it is so tragic to go to church and be given hell rather than to go hear the gospel preached as a way to be saved from it both in this life and in the life to come. I read you the story a few moments ago which is a marvelous example of a man creating a hell for himself. 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Zacchaeus is his name. And uh, he was a tax collector and he was a crooked guy and he was greedy and he ripped everybody off and nobody in town liked him and he didn't like himself obviously you can imagine what kind of home life he probably had and he had a he had a hell of an existence created because of his lust for money because of his greed, because of his lust for power. But he'd heard about this man, Jesus, and so he wanted to just investigate. He'd heard that he maybe even had a tax collector among his followers, a guy he'd met at tax collector's conventions in Rome named Matthew who was a tax collector up in Galilee in the northern part of the country. Zacchaeus was the tax collector down in Judea in the southern part of the country. And so those tax collectors probably knew each other because they didn't have many friends otherwise. They were Jews who had sold out to the Roman invaders and they were detested by the Jews. These were quislings. These were turncoats. These were Benedict Arnolds. These were traitors to God and country. So they were detested by everybody. But he'd heard, I have the feeling he had heard that Matthew, the tax collector up north, had gotten religion, left his business, and now was following this Galilean. I just check him out. So he came, he was a small man in stature, so he climbed that sycamore tree and he got up there and Jesus came into Jericho and it's a wonderful progression of words here. It's just so powerful. Maybe, maybe somebody's here today kind of like Zacchaeus. Maybe you've come here kind of like Zacchaeus climbed up that tree just to kind of investigate it. What do they do in that building behind those stained glass windows and those walls? I've seen that guy on television and heard what he said, but what goes on in there? What do they talk about? Is what he says on television different from what goes on there? 
So you've climbed, figuratively, you've climbed the sycamore tree of Trinity Baptist Church, worship service today, whatever. Whatever brought you here, wherever you're coming from, doesn't make any difference. Zacchaeus climbed that tree because he wanted to see Jesus. Reminds me of what Pascal said, any man who is looking for God has found him. Because the very enticement, the very invitation, the very hunger that has created the desire to know God is the work of God in a person's life. Creating the appetite, creating the hunger, making us cognizant of the emptiness that's there, and we want something. So it is what uh, the old church fathers would call prevenient grace. That means pre-life grace. Before we come to know the grace of God, the grace of God has already started at work in us conditionally, socially, personally, through the prayers of people to create within us that hunger that we have that we think has been initiated by us but has really been created by the prevenient grace of God. Because you see, from the beginning, he's been looking for us, just as he had been for Zacchaeus, and that's why this is a powerful statement to me. When it says in the King James, he came to the place, Jesus came to the place. The translation I read this morning says he reached the spot. He reached the spot, and he's reached this spot today. However feebly it might be done, however many uh, uh, vocabulary mistakes might be made, how many grammatical errors might be made, how many bad notes may be hitting the music, making a difference with all of our frailty and all of our fallibility. God is here. Not in me, but in His Holy Spirit, working through what is being said, working through what has been sung, working through the prayers of people, working through the prayers of people during that prayer meeting right now, in our church here, praying for this service. As Martha said a moment ago, very appropriate. It's no accident. Any of us are here today. God's come to the spot to meet us. It's encounter time. He came to the spot. He came to the place. And he looked up. I bet you when Jesus looked up, at Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus nearly fell out of the tree with fright. He was hoping not to be seen. And then Jesus said, Zacchaeus? He thought, oh my God, he knows my name. He's going to give me hell like everybody else in town. Zacchaeus? Hurry up and come down. I want to have lunch at your house today. Make any difference what kind of tree you're up, or what kind of hole you're in, or what kind of problem you have. He wants to have lunch at your home today. He wants to go home with you today. He wants to take up permanent residence in the home of your heart today. And he invites himself. He invites himself. This is just another emphasis on the fact that God, our God, revealed in Christ, is a seeking God. 
He is a seeking God. The initiative begins with God. I've said it, it bears repeating over and over again. The distinguishing feature in Christianity from all the other religions of the world is a seeking God. In all the other religions of the world, you have men trying to find God. And unfortunately, sometimes seeping in to certain forms of Christianity is that kind of work salvation that you've got to kind of climb, climb up Sunshine Mountain like that little chorus we used to sing sometimes. You've got to find God. You've got to get to God. You've got to search for God. No, you've got to let God find you. For he is the seeker. The initiative begins with him. From the beginning of time, it began with him when he called Adam, Adam, where are you? I'm looking for you, Adam. I'm looking for you. Zacchaeus, come down today. I want to go to your house. I don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus along the way. But I can tell you what happened, I believe. His love rubbed off on him. This acceptance. I believe when Zacchaeus came down out of that tree scared to death and everybody looking at him like they detested him, which they did. And Jesus walks up and puts his arm around his, around his shoulders and said, Zach, come on, let's go home and eat. And something melted inside that hard heart. And the love of this love of God it personified in Christ just rubbed off on him. I don't know what Jesus said to Nick to Zacchaeus. I doubt if he said anything. More than what he had said. I love you in a sense. I want you. Come down. I want to go to your home. So Zacchaeus said, I want to give away half my possessions to the poor. That's not a bad word for us to hear in this day. That's not a bad word to hear in this day. That when people get in touch with Jesus Christ, they get concerned about the poor. Not to blame them, not to hurt them, not to punish them. Throughout the Bible, if you'll read it over and over again, the recurring theme, we are responsible for those who are hurting, for those who are poor, for widows and orphans and all the little ones. When Jesus rubs off in your heart, you'll care about people. And you'll also be concerned about restitution. He said, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times over. He didn't have to do that. But he said, I'm going to do that four times over. I'm going to pay them back. You know, there's so many things about life that can be lost. We so often have used that word judicially, and it is true in a judicial sense that if we do not trust Jesus Christ, we are lost in eternity. We are saved by grace. We are saved by faith. But there's so much stuff in life that can get out of place if we don't have Jesus. And that's what the word lost means. When you lose something, it doesn't mean it ceases to exist. 
When you lose something, when you lose your watch or you lose your ring or you lose it, it doesn't cease to exist. It's not been annihilated. It's just out of place. It's out of relationship. It cannot be used creatively. So a lot of things can get lost in life. And it's interesting in the Greek language, this passage of Scripture, that Jesus climaxes this story with that he has come to seek and to save that which was lost and the word that is neither masculine nor feminine. It's neuter, which is God's way of saying he has come to save everything about life. Heart life, home life, work life, social life. Everything about life he has come to save. He has come to make us whole, to put us together and make us whole persons. He doesn't come just to save our soul as if the soul is some sort of P-shaped gland back here at the base of the skull and that when we trust him, he somehow mysteriously and mystically reaches in there and gets a hold of that little gland and pulls it out, and then the rest of life just goes to hell in a handbasket. That's not what he has come to do. He's come to put all of life together and to save it now and to save it hereafter. Like the fellow who said, I'm not worried so much about the end of the world as I am the end of the month. At the end of the world, I believe I'm going to be okay. I want to meet the Lord. What about the end of the month? He'll be with you at the end of the month. He'll be with you at the beginning and the end of each day. He'll never leave you and never forsake you. And he'll work all things together for good in your life if you will love him and let him go home with you. So much about life that can be lost. I read something, interestingly enough, uh, that pertains to this subject in the Wall Street Journal. The, uh, in jur- in uh, the December issue, December the 29th, last year, 94. And the title of it is, Smash the False Gods of Careerism. You may have read it. Let me read you a section of it, a portion of it. Americans work so hard that we often put work at the emotional and spiritual center of our lives. Professionals work an average of 52 hours a week. College-educated workers in their 20s and 30s work even more. Manufacturing employees in the U.S. work 320 more hours, the equivalent of two months, than their French and German counterparts. National Public Radio recently reported that in the past decade we have added 17 days to the work year. A lot of you are sitting there right now saying amen. That's right. Maybe more than that. John Updike was right when he said, We may live well, but that cannot ease the suspicion that we no longer live nobly. I hear that. You probably do too. People who are burned out from their work. A lot of people disillusioned with their profession. Feeling a sense of meaninglessness about them. We somehow sense that we have been and are being spiritually damaged by this pernicious cycle of working, this interminable treadmill. Workaholism and its handmaidens, careerism and materialism, are not only social issues, they are religious issues. As Diane Fassel wrote in Working Ourselves to Death, work is a god for the compulsive worker, and nothing gets in the way of this god. Work becomes an end in itself, a way to escape from family, from the inner life, and from the world. 
Isn't it interesting it is to me that all biblically-based religions, in the sense that the, the three great religions of the world all believe in revealed theology, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians. We all look to the Bible, to, the, to a monotheistic God who reveals himself. And Muslims and Christians and Jews all believe the Old Testament. They have different interpretations of it, naturally. We Christians believe not only the, New Testament, the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. But in the Old Testament, isn't it interesting that all of the three great religions of the world have a day of rest? It's built into the nature of God, and he built it into our nature, and he put it into all of these revelations of himself. The Muslims, it's Friday. The Jews, it's Saturday. The Christians, it's Sunday. But all have a day when they are refreshed religiously and recreated socially and in familial, family life. He writes, don't sacrifice your family on the altar of career. The journey up to ladder success has brought us much wealth, but it has also devalued the traditional role of the parent as nurturer and teacher while emphasizing almost exclusively the role of provider. And then he quotes a little Yiddish song. It was really written in 1897. It was written to describe parents who worked in sweatshops. But uh, it could be applied today to some people who work in sweatshops in tall buildings with air-conditioned offices with white collars. And here's the song, the poem. I have a son, a little son, a boy completely fine. When I see him, it seems to me that all the world is mine. But seldom, seldom do I see my child awake and bright. I only see him when he sleeps. I'm only home at night. It's early when I leave for work. When I return, it's late. Unknown to me is my own flesh. Unknown is my child's face. When I come home so wearily in the darkness after day, my pale wife exclaims to me, You should have seen our child play. I stand beside his little bed. I look and try to hear. In his dream, he moves his lips. Why, why isn't Papa here? Papa, Mama, there's something more valuable than this. Something more lasting. Than this. Value them. Don't lose that opportunity.
Now I want you to see in the next couple of moments what Jesus did to save him. He identified himself with him. He identified himself with him. That's what the incarnation means. It means that God came to be like us. When Martha and I were in the seminary a long time ago, we were in chapel one day, and the chapel speaker was a scientist philosopher, scientist slash philosopher, remarkable Christian man. And in this chapel service, he told about what happened to him one Saturday. In the university where he taught, he and others, were, they were conducting a, an examination, some tests, investigation of the work habits and the activities of ants, A-N-T-S, ants. And they had this great big area four, five, six feet square, which was really a, a huge ant bed. Not like the little ant farm we may, we may have uh, in our home, but a great, a great big thing where they could, they could watch the interplay between different groups and that sort of thing, both the social study and the, and the scientific study on the life of ants. They were really following the biblical injunction, which you will read in the Old Testament, go to the ant thou sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. So that's what they were doing, going to the ant, considering its ways that they might be wise. Wonderful. Well, that's what they were doing. Well, this man was in that laboratory that day on that Saturday by himself, and he stood there watching those little ants, just working and stirring. You know how they are. You, you leave some Oreo cookies on your kitchen floor tonight, and you don't see how they do it. They're just working, and they're, they, they're crawling over each other. And they're organized. They're carrying burdens two or three or four or five times, maybe more than that, their size or weight. It's incredible what they do. Well, he was standing there looking at them, and he said, what would I do if I wanted to, to tell those ants that I love them? He said, I'd stand there, and I'd say to them, he looked around, be sure no one was watching him, or they'd start investigating and studying him, you know. But he was standing there talking to those ants, and he said, I love you. I love you. None of them looked up. None of them said, thank you. Wonderful. I just kept right on going, going, going. I love you. Don't you hear it? I'll show you I love you. So he reached down there, one little ant laboring along under this humongous burden, reached down there and took that little burden off of his back and put it way over here near his destination, and that hand didn't look up and say, hey, thanks, wonderful. I did that because I loved you. No consciousness of it at all. Right on. And then it dawned on him. That was exactly the problem God had. He created the world and he said, I love you. Nobody looked up and thanks. I sent the patriarchs and the prophets and the poets and the singers and the psalms and the philosophers and the proverbs. I sent all these people to tell you, and you never looked up. 
And so he said, I realize now why God did what he did. For he said, I realize that the only way I could ever communicate to those ants would be to what? Become an ant. To become like them. And that's exactly what he did. He became like us. I never heard a better description of what that big old theological word, incarnation, means than that. He became like us. He got into the ant bed of life for us. Now, my friend, he didn't come to step on you. He didn't come to crush you. He didn't come to hurt you. He didn't come to give you hell. He came to give you hope and health and help and happiness. And here's the word. He came to give you a new home. In my imagination, I can see it happening. Little Zacchaeus Jr. comes running in the house and he says, Mama, Mama, something's happened to Daddy. He's just throwing money around everywhere and hugging people and loving people. We're going to be happy again at home. Daddy is different. Come on. Trust him, accept him, acknowledge him. Let him go home with you today.